study New York Yo, what's going on, everybody? It's the Forbidden Technique Podcast with your boys Silas and Christian. We got a decent UFC fight night to get into. Benil Darius taking on Armin Sarukian. And I think this is actually in an arena in Texas somewhere or some shit. It's a pretty good card. It's kind of weird. There's a lot of weird context around some of the fights and people changing weight divisions and stuff. But it's pretty well matched. There's some uh, interesting enough stuff to talk about. We didn't get a podcast in last week, so maybe uh, towards the end of the episode we'll touch on some of the stuff that happened last week. Um, Christian, what do you think about this card? It's pretty good. Uh, I think the the weight weirdness for the fights kind of makes it a bit harder to do just like flat objective analysis on it, since for three of the the five main card fights there or six main card fights. There's just a weird like weight class change or, or like a short notice thing like, like Jalen Turner in particular, it's, it's the fights listed as at 155, but like how the fuck is Jalen Turner going to make 155 on short notice? Yeah. I, mean, I assume Jalen Turner was 300 pounds when he got that phone call. So, and he didn't have a fight that got canceled uh, to get this one set up. So it's not, he, he may have been in camp, but I, I don't think he was keeping his weight down. Probably. Yeah, who knows? And then Davison Figueredo moving moving up to bantamweight to fight Rob Font. You know, um, guess if uh, Figgy's still fighting, I'm glad to see him make the move up to bantamweight, and maybe we'll see some rejuvenation with a less draining weight cut. But uh, not an easy welcome to the division by any stretch. Getting Rob Font as your first fight at bantamweight, yeah, uh, up from flyweight in particular. And in Gastelum's fighting at one seventy now is like a desperation weight change. Kelvin Gastelum, yeah, back down at welterweight because he has two wins in his last like eight fights, and one of them's a robbery. Yeah, is he even gonna make weight? What's actually going on with Kelvin Gastelum? You never know. But then he is fighting Sean Brady, so I don't know. Um, I guess let's just get straight on into the main event. Benil Dariush, Armin Sarukian. A normal fight. Yeah, normal, very good, a legitimate top contenders fight at lightweight. Armin Sarukian should be getting a title eliminator if he wins this. And... I don't know what you do with Benil uh, coming off of a win in this situation, but I think he, it's still a title eliminator. Yeah, I think with the streak that he had going before, and you know, getting knocked out by the former champion and Charles Oliveira, he should still be right there to be in that conversation with a relevant win like this. And this matchup is is weird. I look at it and I'm like, oh, I don't know. Armin Sarukian, he's young and he's really athletic and. Up and Neil just got knocked out really hard, and then I'm kind of like, I'm not, I'm not sure it's a good situation for Armin Sarukian where I'm looking at a matchup and thinking that his best path to victory is probably to win by knockout on the feet. Is my first thought because I think it's pretty unlikely that he's going to out wrestle Benil Dariush. 
I think if anyone is going to out of the the current crop of lightweights that are grapply, I think that he has the highest chance of actually wearing out Benny because normally Benny can just hang in there with people that are going to grapple him for a long that's time. That's a point we got. That's a point we got five rounds here, and you know, Gamrot never even really got a chance to pace bully Benil because if everything just gets shut down in the first layer, then there's no real ability to snowball because he's just getting stranded on the feet, getting his ass whooped because he has no defense. Whereas, I, I don't know, Armin Sarikian, I, th- I think he's certainly a m- more um, consistent top player than Gamrot. I'm just not sure. Like, how good have you got to be at that at this point for, for that to be uh, the consistent path to victory against Benil Darius? You know, he got like his back taken and choked out by Michael Chiesa a really fucking long time ago and Armin Sarukian is kind of, his kind of most notable wrestling wins uh really like Demir Ishmagulov who you know, and, and that was a pretty was fairly inactive just like kind of maintaining initiative by having a positional advantage and putting Demir in a state of defense, but it's not like he beat the fuck out of Demir on the ground or anything. Um, I just can't see it. And then on the feet, you know, Armin Sarukian, yeah, he's explosive. He clearly hits hard because he's just a fucking powerhouse. He's a very just rote selector strike kind of guy. Um, you know I mean? He knocked out Christos Diagos with a like a nice counter left hook and you know he he hurt Gamrot with I mean j- just generally having an active kicking game you know he he will just wang kicks when he's at range and he has fast and powerful roundhouse kicks um certainly a good idea to just fucking wang big old right high kicks at Benil Dariush he just he doesn't hurt people as often as you would expect him to because he's just not particularly subtle and nothing really connects to anything or builds off of the last thing that he did to draw out reactions to really surprise people. And he will just like entertain striking battles for people for extended periods of time, even when he doesn't need to, against guys like Joaquin Silva... And he nearly gets fucking knocked out by a big fucking... He's clanged by a by a big wide left hand. Joaquin Silver is uh, kind of just like famously fragile and ready to implode if you can really put a pace on him. I don't know. He might just like kind of crack Benny with something and just, just donk him. But I, I, I just kind of think Benil Dariush is the better fighter. I don't know. I get what you mean. I think that this... So you mentioned Sarukian's had some difficulties with pace bowling people because it's it's not actually that hard to slow down his pace uh, if you have some counter opportunities against him. And he also just doesn't seem to have the temperament for a pace bully. But I think they are trying to turn him into a pace bully because that's just the most reliable path to success for his skill set. Uh, for most of the top lightweights, and you never see the guy get tired. Yeah, yeah, like he uh, he obviously has a gas tank on him, and he's got the tools in theory to to pace bully. It's just weird because now they're giving him 
a fight against the guy where kind of your only reliable path to victory is to pace bully him. Like you can always go up and hit him, but Benny's hard to just go up and knock out. There's a reason that this happened once flukishly with, uh, Alexander Hernandez, who's one of the, the more athletic freaks at that point in the UFC, just for going up and randomly balking someone. And a total unknown quantity who, ca- yeah. who caught Benil cold. Yeah, uh, Charles Oliveira, who's the most dangerous fighter in the history of the sport. Yeah, so he doesn't have like a huge history of, of really just getting sparked real quick. He did get knocked out by Ramsey Nijim a very long time ago, which is slightly embarrassing. But also, just like sometimes people get finished when they're not very good. Yeah, and know? like their seventh fight. Literally, sometimes people just get finished because because they're not that experienced. That's that's a thing that happens. Yeah, so it, it's a. The the actual reliable way to beat him is to pace bully him, because even though not many people have actually pace bullied him successfully, not that many people have had the goods to even really try. Like if you look at his his fights, it's something where it's really just the eye test makes you think he's pace bullyable. Yes, that CDF fight was getting pretty rough in the third round, you know. Yeah, and CDF himself gassed from trying to pace bully him. But if he could have not gassed and then had two more rounds, it was a pretty good fight for him. Uh, and I, I think that anyone that can actually pace bully him, and e- even if you're pace bullying him not to win on cardio, but just to fuck him up really hard early, because he does have to pace himself a bit. Like Benny does have to fight a little reserved if you're someone that has a good gas tank in the first round. Like there's a reason he didn't go super hard on Gamrot, and like, Gamrot made him in the first round. He got ten eighted by Evan Dunham in the third round too. Like it's kind of it's kind of been there. It's just never been a thing that. Usually when he loses fights, it is because he gets finished by someone extremely fucking dangerous. Of course, the other one that we didn't mention was uh, Edson Barboza, who hit him with a flying knee that would have knocked out Francis Ngannou. So... Yeah, that was, that was just a good read, you know? It wasn't necessarily a, like a systematic flaw with Benny's game. It, Benny's a fighter who... He doesn't have enough losses that are... That are like, he doesn't really have any, any damning losses at all. He, he has... Some weird ones, but generally the trend you can see in his fights is he is pace bullyable. You just got to be really fucking good at it. So this is, I feel, the hardest test they could have given Sarukian. Like to test his ability to to push a pace and keep a pace without getting fucked up. But also, Benny has uh, quite a lot of advantages in the fight. I, I feel like on the feet, it's, it's always going to be really scary for Sarukian. Just like the mental pressure of having to deal with someone that can actually hurt you. And Benny, is he has weird speed. If he's going backwards, he's probably the slowest fighter in the top 30 of lightweight. But if he gets in his groove and he's, he's feeling himself, he's pretty fucking quick. He's never fast, but he's pretty fucking quick if, if he's like feeling it, you know? He... Like he, he looked like the slowest fighter who, who ever lived against Charles Oliveira because Charles Oliveira came up at him and beat the fuck out of him. You know, he's bad when he's reacting. Do you really expect Armin Sarukian to roll up and put hard pressure on Benny in the first round? Because that was really what ultimately led me to just pick Charles Oliveira to go out and kill Benny, even though that was a fight that I was thinking could have been pretty close coming into it. Because I was just like, Benny is a kind of... He's kind of an all-terrain striker who should be more dedicated to pressure. That's clearly where he's best. But if it, if he feels that it's like harder to impose in a matchup, then 
he is willing to like work behind a jab and move his feet. And that's the thing, if you if you can see that kind of directionality to someone like Charles Oliveira, you're just gonna get fucking murdered. I'm not sure that Armin Sarukian is gonna do that. And even if he does, I'm not sure that he also isn't just gonna get a hit with big counter left hands. Yeah, and uh I, like, I don't want to bring Benil's age into it too much, but I do feel like it's worth noting that he looked the slowest he's ever looked in his last fight, and he's he's not exactly young. Uh, I always feel like it turns out he's younger than we think he is. He's 34, uh, but it, it's more like I feel like you have to be really urgent about when you're trying to pick up on if he's slowed down because he's already slow. There, There's... There's two ways of thinking about it whenever a slow fighter gets slower. Um, it's either, oh, well, he's already used to being slow, so it's not going to affect his timing too much. Or, oh, fuck, now he's even slower. And at, in this type of matchup, I think it could be a real problem, even if he slowed down like 2% or something. Because uh, Armin Surkin could just step forward, jab right overhand. He's also looked the strongest he's ever looked in his last couple of fights. He certainly has. Um, I, I think Surukian on the... He, it's really just if he goes forward and, and tries to crack him with something not even slick, but just just f- like fast or, or in- insistently. If he just goes up and puts like a three-punch hook combination on Benny, I think he probably cracks him with one of them. Hey, he's got a decent one-two high kick. You know, that's a, that's a, that's a move that he can do and will just fucking spam it. Yeah, the... Uh... Uh, Benny has a lot of ability to win at range if he can kind of strand Saruki in there. But I don't think Sarukian is going to worry too much about that because if he gets too stranded, he'll just shoot a bad shot and then follow it up into trying to like chain wrestle, you know? Like I, I don't think this is a fight that's particularly punishing for him if he shoots bad shots. No, it's it, it's more that just if um, the wrestling isn't really leading to anything and he's getting pushed back, that this fight gets real fucking ugly for Armin. Yeah, and, and we've seen Armin with good cardio, but we haven't seen him with good cardio while getting body kicked and outscrambled. Assuming he gets outscrambled, which he, he really might not. He might not, but also, like, how does he react to just getting, like, chased around and bombed on with left hands? Not great against Joaquin Silva. My guess is bad. Yeah. So um, I'm going to pick Benil Dariush by knockout. Um, what about you? I, I think it's it's a kind of difficult fight uh, to be super certain on. I'm seeing people think that Sarukin just automatically wins because he's younger and he's he's good. Um, but I I think. Benny is probably going to fuck him up pretty good even in a loss, uh, unless Sarukian can just like walk up and bonk him real quick. But that hasn't traditionally been his MO. You know, like he, I mean, he, he did that to Christos Giagos, which is a good sign because there, there's a few similarities between the two fighters. Like Giagos is a, a good wrestler. He's a good grappler, but he is pretty fuck-offable if you just walk up to him, especially early. But I, I think I am going to pick Sarukian, just with the caveat that uh, Benny has a, a really good chance of winning in the first three rounds. Uh, I think Sarukian, if he does win, it'll be by a ground and pound finish in like rounds three to five. 
And I think it would be him hurting him on the feet because Benny slowed down and then just following him to the ground and, and punching him. But I don't have any strong reads on the fight just because the way their striking matches up is just ugly. Like, I don't think there is. I don't think it's going to be a pretty looking fight on the feet, which if it's a prettier looking fight on the feet, I think it does favor Benny quite a bit. I'm expecting it to be scrappy. Yeah, yeah. Hard fight to be confident about either way, but I think that that should make for a uh, fantastic competition. And then we got the fucking weirdest fight on the card. Bobby Green versus Jalen Turner. I don't even know if this is the weirdest fight on the card, but it's, as we mentioned, um, not too sure how Jalen Turner's going to do having to cut from light heavyweight. But assuming that he's fine, uh, I don't know. Is it bad analysis to just be like, oh, Bobby Green's just going to get bigged. He's just going to get chased around and he's just going to get punched from really far away by by a giant guy. I don't think it's bad analysis at all. I think it is entirely understandable given that if you look at the height of the last like basically every single person Bobby Green's ever fought, he has not fought someone with the the like weird proportions that Jalen Turner has. Also, it's on short notice. And he was preparing to fight uh, Dan Hooker. Another weird, lanky, violence guy. Yeah, he, like, he's, he went from fighting a guy that's the tallest person he's fought in his last... Uh, I'm looking through his topology to find someone as tall. His last ever. He's kind of fought a bunch of stocky right, dudes. Except James lately. Krause. Yeah, James Krause in 2013 is the, the last dude that he fought who's like, tall. Yeah, and he just finished James Krause with penis kicks. Mm-hmm. So actually, that's a real possibility. His he has kind of immobile hips for kicking, and he always kicks, and he loves a front kick, and he loves uh, throwing a body kick that always lands on like the lower stomach on even shorter fighters. So he's probably gonna kick him in the balls a few times. Yeah, and apparently Bobby Green just has a weird thing for fight-ending fouls now. So. That's yeah. a possibility. Also, I'm I'm not even counting Tony Ferguson as like a tall opponent because he's rangy, but he's also he's five eleven and he's elderly. I so. forgot that Bobby Green fought Tony Ferguson. Um. Yeah, you took like a moral stand against that fight, which I I think is fair. Yeah, I would prefer to forget it. Um. Yeah, I th- more than even the size, I think. I think Jalen Turner just you you, you kind of got to be able to like out wrestle him, which you don't have to be amazing at to do because like Matt Frivola did it, but if if not it but I I just it I think you got to be able to out punch Jalen Turner. I think you've actually got to be able to like get in his face and bang with him. I don't think being a I don't know about being a feather-fisted slickster against Jalen Turner when he's just going to be uh, putting together really violent combinations from 10 feet away on you constantly. Well, firstly, feather-fisted who? Bobby Green has knocked out more of his recent opponents than Jalen Turner. <laughs> I mean, fair. <laughs> I think that the Dan Hooker fight actually showed a lot of stuff Bobby Green can work with. Uh, like the intercepting jab, for for one, it's... It's Bobby Green's entire thing uh, is he is he likes to jab you as you enter. 
So Jalen Turner doesn't really like having to chase someone. He likes just fucking them up from a long distance. And Bobby Green is, is one of the better uh, like ranged boxers in the division. And he has the, a good chance that he could just, you know, drop in on a quick takedown. And I think he, I don't think he's going to have reliable wrestling success on Jalen Turner, mostly out of like temperament alone. I don't think Bobby Green's going to hunt for it, but he likes to throw in a takedown every now and then just sprinkle him in. So if he can get Jalen Turner at all apprehensive with a takedown and just keep jabbing him, then I could see him making it to a decision. And also Jalen Turner's offense does not like when his opponent has defense at all. Uh, most of his offense that lands comes from someone that's completely shelled up and just given up on defending it and just trying to get away, which Bob Green has never done a single time in his life. He will always try and defend, no matter how bad of a position he's in to do it. Yeah, Jalen Turner is certainly much better at working with stationary opponents than drawing out overreactions to, you know, in the way that like yeah. Drew Dober knocked out Bobby Green. Yeah, I think on just general uh, shot selection, uh, like habits that Jalen Turner has, he could have good work with uh, like showing punches into knees because Bobby Green likes exaggerated ducks and uh, he's not super reserved about when he goes for it, no matter the, the frame or the the preferred shot selection of his opponent. Like Jalen Turner, he could you know pop a jab to try and start a clinch exchange and get a collar tie and throw a, a knee and accidentally clip Bobby Green as Bobby Green's exaggeratedly ducking. But I don't think that it's something he's gonna look for necessarily because, like we said, that's not really the way that he goes about finding power shots. And uh, Bobby Green could have some upside just you know showing a jab to the body and then coming up with the lead hook. And just get Turner's respect, at least. I think if Bobby Green can get Jalen Turner's respect, which is admittedly very hard and kind of a tough ask to do for someone that is, like you said, not a very big hitter, uh, then he he could actually kind of work Jalen Turner just based off of Turner's own defensive liabilities and not being uh, as versatile of an offensive strike as an offensive striker as we had once thought. I think the Dan Hooker fight, even though it was a good showing, um, it still showed a lot of stuff that you can work with if you're trying to game plan for him. And the short notice throws a bit of a monkey wrench into it because if they were both more prepared, I would expect Jalen Turner to just fucking cut through Bobby Green unless Bobby Green has some read that I'm just not thinking of. But, I don't know, jabbing on the outside and, and like, teeping could give Bobby Green all he really needs to just stay away long enough to make it to a decision and win. Well, no, you're right, because <laughs> the jab was a massive thing for Dan Hooker, but it also helped that in the case of Dan Hooker, he was able to do that uh, mutual punching range with Jalen Turner in a way that Bobby Green's just going to have to work a little harder for. I think Jalen Turner's going to win a split decision where it's like... a fairly even jabbing match in the first but then Bobby Green's going to get hurt really bad in the second but then he will have been hitting the body and then in the third round he's going to put the pace on and everyone's going to like uh, give Bobby the Diaz treatment but he's going to lose the split decision that's always a fair pick in a Bobby Green fight uh, I'm going to just uh, I'm going to shoot for the moon and say Jalen Turner actually hurts him because Bobby Green loves getting 
punched over his shoulder and Jalen Turner has a really good angle to punch him over the shoulder and he likes stand switching. So it's just going to be there for him to, to find a weird shot over the shoulder as Bobby Green moves backwards. Also, Bobby Green loves moving backwards along the cage and Jalen Turner loves having his opponent against the fence. And he loves throwing huge body kicks that don't matter how good your defense is against it because it's still going to hit you. Big long hooks as well. <laughs> yep, he's got like a lot of ability to range bully his i mean bobby green likes to slip towards uh, like kick arcs so just showing power shot into right high kick or left high kick from either stance uh it, it's it's probably going to work out if if you know you run the numbers enough so i'm going to pick jalen turner by knockout in the second round but also the short notice makes me think uh uh, maybe something else could happen. Hey, maybe Bobby Green just has the death touch now. Yeah, I mean he is he is finishing people, you know. Like it, even though it seems like a little goofy the whole context of it, it's not un unimportant that suddenly at fucking how old like at thirty five he's thirty seven now at, at like thirty five he just started being able to hurt people like that. That's something that's actually quite a lot to that's that's quite a boon in your late career is is suddenly being able to hurt people because that's going to give fighters that otherwise have a good skill set the but not really necessarily the horsepower to to get the the fights they need to win by finish uh but like it's it's important that he's now able to hurt people i'm sure it's given him a lot of confidence like maybe we'll actually see him on the front foots on this fight because jalen turner isn't impossible to move backwards okay so uh, yeah, we got Davison Figueredo finally moving up to bantamweight, and I don't hate this in terms of matchmaking. Like theoretically, it's for a former champion taking your first fight in a new division. Traditionally, they tend to match you pretty well, and Rob Font is a divisional mainstay at 135 who is maybe starting to get up there in his career a little bit and is on a little bit of a rough streak with a very respectable win sprinkled in there with the knockout over Adrian Yanez. So like in terms of like who who do you give as an opponent for Davison Figueredo at a new weight from most perspectives, it makes sense. It just seems like a real rough fight for Figueredo. Um, you know, I've been wondering how he's going to show up every fight since uh, the second Brando Moreno fight, and it's not like he hadn't had some weird inconsistencies throughout his career before that. And I've also just never been sure about how his style is going to age because he was such a wacky improvisational athletic bully in his heyday at 125 as you know it's a reason people called him tiny yoel romero because he would just it would look like he was just kind of trying stuff to see what would happen and just fucking ripping people's heads off and throwing them out the cage being that kind of guy going up in weight when you're getting older fighting a guy who's fucking huge and hits really hard and is extremely dangerous given their slice of the fight I, I, I worry about that on the other hand 
you know, what if the the slightly easier weight cut gives him a little something back and he feels a lot faster at a new weight? And, you know, what if he can land a one a huge counter right hand on Rob Font that you need to land every round to steal rounds off of him these days? I don't know. What do you think? Uh, I think Rob Font has... Uh, he is one of those weird fighters that actually has a pretty good chin, but he gets dropped a lot. And I think that that could come to bite him in this in this matchup. Uh, Figueredo is he has bad defense. No matter what like random situations he'll you'll see where his defense looks pretty okay. His defense is generally quite bad. Even when you see him try some stuff, it's always kind of just trying stuff. He's never been systematic defensively in any way. Yeah, and and Font is an incredibly measured fighter. He's he's not someone that's just gonna go up and get himself fucked up. You you really have to have the counter punching goods, which I think that Figueredo has the power and I think he has the timing to land the shots. But it's about whether or not he's trading shots. Like if they both land a left hook at the same time, I think they both go down. You know, like that's where I think their chins are at at this point. Because Figueredo, he's been known for having kind of shit defense but an insane chin and now his chin's getting worse and his defense getting like marginally better it's more just his approach to to not getting hit in the face is getting better more so than his his defense in a vacuum mostly just fighting from further away yeah yeah and uh and focusing more on landing big power shots that disincentivize uh like pressure and and actually just putting hands on him but I don't think Font is easy enough to dissuade that getting dropped even once or, or twice could really stop him from trying to insist upon his jab and like show uppercuts and left hooks and right hooks and probably torch in the body pretty well. Also in the clinch, I think it's rough for Figueredo because he's not really a monster in close. He he really, even especially at this point, prefers to be farther away. And Font is someone that normally fucking shits on people that love being farther away that are shorter than him. Sergio Pettis fight being an example. Uh, like if, if you have some sort of uh, like range disparity that, that is giving font the ability to jab you like an inch before you can jab him, then he's, he's going to make that inch feel like a mile, you know? Yeah. And if you, if you're backing up against him and letting him do his thing, you know he he's really fucking dangerous when he gets into a flow it, it's more people who were able to kind of just pick up on the patterns cuz he gets he gets a little tunnel visioned on his own work and a little predictable and so sometimes by good counter punches he just gets hit real fucking clean and it 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 just rocks his entire fucking world and loses him entire rounds yeah, something Font always has to grapple with is he has a really high pace, and he always does it. And he has pretty diverse shot selection. He he is a rote fighter, but he's only like so visibly rote because he's throwing a fuckload every single round. You're getting more data to work with to figure out his shot selection. So you're going to notice, oh, this guy has done a double jab, right uppercut, double jab, left hook, double jab, right hook, single jab, right straight fucking eight times each this round. I just got to kind of pick one to counter. Uh, and I think Figueredo has the ability to do that, but I also think that Font could win this fight just jabbing. 
Like if he just, if, if he in particular doesn't take the front foot and, and just kind of stays in the center of the, the cage, then I think Figueredo actually has a lot of troubles uh, closing distance because Font in his own right is a good counterpuncher. And he has, you know, re- he's really good in tie-ups. Um, I think that Font's, he should be, he, he may not be, but even on short notice, he should, like, the, the fight against Sandhagen was a bad look. He should be worried about takedowns if, if Figueredo can get on top, just for the sake of, it's only a three-round fight, and if Figueredo gets on top one of those rounds, Font's not great at getting up. Or if Figueredo gets on top one round, then Font's not very good at getting up, uh, especially based off his recent showing where a guy who's not traditionally a career wrestler just super fucking easily got top position on him with an injured arm. He is a good wrestler, but also, um, Figueredo, not a bad grappler. Uh, he's, he's certainly, this is just a weird one to pick because you don't really know where Fig's going to be at. Cause at 135 he could look like a fucking monster and, and have absolutely no disadvantage from coming up a weight class, or he could look fucking horrible and, and get, um, like chin super hard because his chin didn't get better enough by not doing weight cutting uh, to to make up for the fact that he's fighting people that hit harder now. Well, and this is that you know by the time Luke Rockhold went up to light heavyweight, it was too late for that. Mm-hmm. Didn't didn't matter. Also, Figueroa's face is getting more and more fuck upable. Like he, he gets a lot more visible damage. And Rob Font, if you're fighting Rob Font, you're gonna get your your eye swollen if he's jabbing you. He's got really. Uh, like visibly damaging hands. Every time he's he's landing on someone reliably, he'll hurt him. With the exception of you know Cheeto Vera, because Cheeto Vera is uncuttable. But I, I I just don't think Figueroa has subtle enough defense to stop Rafont from reliably putting big power on him. And I also don't think Figueroa is a good enough grappler to stop Font from just getting up if he does get an unwell time takedown. Marlon Marias took Rob Font down in the first round, and Rob Font just stood up and fucking ripped Marlon Marias' head off. Also, if Font gets on top of him because Font's large, you know, Font is really damaging from like strong positions like Mount. Yeah, that is that is really where I'm at with this one is that even if Figueredo tries to take that counter punching approach, like you know, Jose Aldo was just able to stay really defensively solid. And Cheeto Vera was able to do that to a lesser extent, but while also having an invisible force field around his head. Adrian Yanez just went in there and tried to outpunch Rob Font and found out that was a fucking terrible idea. So I think even if Figueroa's trying to take that counter-punching approach, I just think he's going to get fucking torched waiting for that shot to come. If he's waiting on Rob Font and looking for counter-opportunities... That just means he's just going to be moving backwards and letting Rob Font get into his flow. I just think he's going to get waxed. And even though it wasn't necessarily that bad of a look in hindsight um, that he got dropped by a jab from Brandon Moreno, it it made sense because it was like, oh, maybe he had like a rough weight cut. It was just it was a really well-timed jab. His feet were not in place to take it. But uh, Rob Font's like a better jabber than Brandon Moreno, I would say. Uh, it, it's at minimum more versatile and harder. It's not the worst look I've ever seen, but it is like a worry if you're fighting Rob Font. Yeah, and Rob Font has he's like hurt people with jabs before. You know, he hurt Marlon Rice with the jab. His jab has fucking force on it. 
he was pretty much winning the entire Cody Garbrandt fight just by the jab being a big enough damage threat on its own. He's got big, long old arms and huge fucking hands. It looks like he's got rocks in his gloves. Like, if he's connecting with you, it's doing some kind of damage. Yeah, and he managed to keep one of the best counterpunchers in 125 history completely stranded at range in Sergio Pettis because Sergio didn't have the power to to hurt him when he did land and also didn't have the the first, second, third layer defense to stay away from a, a triple jab, you know? It's, just, it's a dangerous spot for Figueredo to be at that leaves him so few opportunities to find a good offense unless he just hunts the body relentlessly and only stays going on the front foot and and, and does like a Jessica Andrade impression and is just always moving his head. Oh, sorry, uh, Rafael Asuncao, the other guy who beat Rob Font with counter-punching also has <clears throat> some of the best defense in Bantamweight history. Yeah, and... Uh, is just a better counterpuncher than Figueredo, even if Figueredo's counters are harder. And it was a younger Rob Font who was a lot easier to to handle in that in that method. I think Font learned a lot from that type of loss. I I certainly think so. Um. So yeah, I'm picking Rob Font by first round knockout. I think that's fair. Kelvin Gaston. Oh, Sean Brady. Sorry, I, I didn't mean to say that like it sounded like I was stifling a puke, but um, <laughs> like Sean Brady versus Kevin Gastelum, this matchup annoys the shit out of me because I feel like if Kelvin Gastelum had a single other fight at welterweight, um, like going back down before this one, I would have a 100% pick rate for it. Like, if I just had any data to go off of for him recently as a welterweight, like, even if he's just going to... Like, if I just knew if he was going to make weight, you know, I feel like I could take yeah. the fight easily. <laughs> that's that's the big one, right? Um, but because I don't know any of these things, I have to just assume their average, and their average is Sean Brady fucking hates fighting southpaws and Kelvin Gastelum hits hard and is hard to take down in the first layer. Yeah, particularly if he's going to be enjoying some kind of size advantage or at least parity again. Yeah, because he, he got taken down and held down a little bit by Robert Whitaker. And k- traditionally, Kelvin Gastelum has been hard to take down, but not that hard to actually get shit done on or, or done with on the ground. Kelvin, I mean, Rob, Rob Whitaker, for all of his flaws as a wrestler and grappler, has an incredibly well timed shot because he's just the fastest man at, at 185 ever. Yeah, and he's got pretty good finishing mechanics on it. Uh, he's just bad from top position, and he just locked it down on Kelvin Gastelum in a way that I think Sean Brady would get a lot more done with. Like, if, if you let Sean Brady like get established in top half guard, it's a tough ask to just get up. Certainly, but do you think Sean Brady can get that shot in at the first play, in the first place? I think he... I think he definitely can. I think... Even if he does that in the first round, I don't think he'll get the finish within the first round, so he'll have to do it twice, which makes it a lot more sided towards Gaslam for me. But again, that's a, a really hard fight to to accurately pick with what little data we have going into it, because Gaslam could just look fucking terrible because he's on it he he is not winning a lot lately. He his most recent win is a robbery. And it was one where he kind of got his ass beaten, one because he headbutted the guy. Unintentionally, arguably. But then before that, his, his last one was Ian Heinish, who is fucking massive and 
not a good grappler or a particularly good striker, Sean Brady might actually be able to hang on the feet just by having a good lead hook. And we don't know where Gaslam's at in regards to to handling someone at, at 170 that's just fast. You know, like Sean Brady's not particularly fast, but you know, everyone at 170 is faster than people at 185 for the most part, you know? I don't know. Sean Brady's a good bit slower than a bunch of the guys that Kelvin Gaslam's been fighting in middleweight. Fair. Kelvin Gaslam specifically, they gave him fucking Jared Cannonier with Robert Whitaker and Darren Till. And Chris Curtis is way faster than Sean Brady. Yeah, well, I think like just on power or or, or just on like mechanics and, and shit, he's faster. But I, I think Sean Brady athletically, like he is a good lead hook. That that's about all he has on the feet is a good lead hook, which could be enough for Gaslam. But also, there's people that have had good lead hooks that just get fucking wiped by Gaslam. So yeah, I mean, also uh, Kevin Gaslam's chin has not really been in question at any point that still seems to be absolutely fine i'm totally with you on this one like yeah i would pick kelvin gastelum very comfortably to probably get taken down in the first round but then start sprawling brawling the shit out of sean brady and putting the pace on him and then just like kind of just like shove him into the cage and like bomb on him with left hands but um how do you trust kelvin gastelum ever ever yeah yeah uh, it's a weird one where if Kelvin Gastelum's not even at his best, if he just has a, a pretty okay performance by his standards, then I think he wins the fight very comfortably. I think he got really fucking lucky that he wasn't fighting Shafkat Rachmanov, which is the a canceled bout from earlier the, in the year. Oh, that would have been a slaughter. Yeah, that one I'm very certain Shafkat just fucking kills him. But this one, Sean Brady definitely has the potential to get a takedown and arm triangle he could just do what chris weidman did functionally except hopefully avoid the getting his ass beat that chris weidman did a little bit before he got the finish because i don't really think sean brady has the i don't think he has the composure to handle if someone's putting shots on him reliably like you know blah muhammad who has never finished anyone and then finishes sean brady and makes it look easy no but 100 percent, if sean brady gets those kind of positions on Kelvin Gastelum, he can do exactly what Chris Weidman did and just do the old pass to side control to make him give up the back and then arm triangle him. <sighs> I don't know, dude. Also, Sean Brady's got a pretty good guillotine and Gastelum is not that hard to get in a position where you put him in a guillotine. He's just normally like pretty good about getting out of it. But that's... Not a good strategy to to defend a takedown or to defend a guillotine for Sean Brady. Uh, to to simply have no neck. Yeah, uh, I I think that Sean Brady has a lot more he can work with just because it's such a lopsided matchup against him. So like, there's more things he could do to change the odds than Gaslam has. Where Gaslam, it's more just hey, just don't get taken down. You probably win really comfortably, or even just don't get taken down too much. So I'm, I'm going to pick Kelvin Gastelum by uh, pace finish. I don't think he's just going to spark him because at 170, I'm just not trusting that his, his like speed and power is going to be there, but I think his, he's, he's going to put shots on him. No, he needs to do the old Tim Kennedy fight. Mm-hmm. Because this is basically the Tim Kennedy fight against a smaller Tim Kennedy that's better at submissions and also a worse striker. Uh, yeah, I guess. Not by much, but just on like size. 
I'd say. Oh, I really, I really want to pick Calvin Gastelum. I'm going to, but it, it just feels bad picking the guy going that's on a huge uh, like flop streak going against a guy that's actually pretty good going down a weight class. Particularly Calvin Gastelum, the guy who really made his name when he went up to 185 as the small guy who could put a pace on people and you know you know after after having this reputation as this guy who just didn't have the discipline to make 170 if you're then going to go on a massive losing streak at that weight class and then go on oh, now it's the time to go back down in weight yeah, I don't know. You probably just shouldn't pick that guy to win a fight ever. No, I'm going to pick Sean Brady by submission. <laughs> that is fair. Also, his last fight at 170 was against Johnny Hendricks. It was? Yeah, his last fight at 170 was against Johnny Hendricks in 2016. And then after that, he beat Tim Kennedy, lost to Chris Weidman, had a no contest against Vitor because I'm pretty sure he popped for weed. Um, he knocked out Michael Bisping on, like... 12 days notice after Bisping had lost by basically getting knocked out and submitted. He decisioned uh, Jacare in an arguable robbery and then lost three fights, beat Ian Heinish, lost three fights. One of them, he got a robbery. So he he not, he not didn't even really make a name for himself at 185. He had kind of a fucking terrible record there. <laughs> well, he had a bad he, record at 172. <laughs> yeah, but like he he beat a former champion at 170. Like he he beat uh you beat fucking Johnny Hendricks and he beat um beat or he lost Karen Woodley, but he got to an interim title shot and uh gave the the future long reigning champion a motherfucker of a fight. So ranking-wise, uh, Sean Brady's not far from Neil Magny. It's kind of stupid they didn't just give him a Neil Magny rematch because he's lost to Neil Magny before. If you lose to Neil Magny again when you go back to 170, then I think you should just leave. Like, just just, just retire, you know? Kelvin Gaston, he's, he's made, what's his career disclosed earnings? <laughs> he's, already, he's already lost to Neil Magny. Like, what are we doing here? <laughs> his career disclosed earnings are $603,000. He should just go do, like, yoga because he has had a bad UFC run. It sounds good if you if you're kind of stuck in in the mindset of wanting to believe that he had a good run like I was for a very long time. But just looking at his record and remembering all of his performances, watching some of his fights recently, he's just had a fucking he's had a really disappointing UFC run. He has had about two good fights and not like good fights, but like two fights where he looked good. Mainly just knocked out a bunch of old people at 185. And by a bunch, you mean like two. Well, he did knock out Vitor. He just got weeded. Yeah, yeah. But also, like, there's old, and then there's, like, how old Vitor was old. And then he's Michael Bisping's retirement oh, yeah, fight. The, the Michael bit, yeah. Uh, as you say, after three weeks after basically getting knocked out by GSP. Because um, <laughs> people think of him as making his, his name at one 185, but he, he looked fucking terrible there. He was a, he was in a worse division. People didn't notice. <laughs> like, oh, Kevin Kevin Gastelum, he really put it together at this division. It's just like, no, he's just he's fighting worse people, <laughs> and then just ra- randomly had the one huge overperformance in a fight where he still got absolutely torched against Israel Adesanya. Yeah, the the general narrative that the Izzy fight was close has done a lot for Kevin Gastelum's career trajectory, even though it was. 
the, pretty much the equivalent of the Land of Anata versus Tony Ferguson fight, where like a guy that's pretty good fucks up a, a like a genuinely elite fighter and then proceeds to get outclassed, like immediately after. So on to a, a you, better still fight. Picking Kelvin Gastelum. Yeah, yeah, I'm still picking Kelvin Gastelum. Um, probably yeah, by like one two or, or three two. Nice. Uh, what the those, that's what, what Kevin Gaslam's gonna do, yeah. Right, uh, Clay Greed is fighting Joaquin Silver. I know about this one. Joaquin Silver is dangerous, but fragile and pace bulliable. Um, there's a real chance that he just like tries some stuff and gets tired, tired real quick, and then Clay Greedy just gets a takedown and puts the fucking clay guida grind set on him i think it's probably more likely the whacking silver just like like donks clay guida with a flying knee or guillotines him or something like that yeah i you know i think i actually want to start something i want to start a like a test going from now until clay guida retires where we look at the the finish percentage of his opponents and if it's over 60 percent, we pick them to beat clay guida but if it's under, we pick them to get finished by Clay Guida or, or like decisions wide. So looking at it, he has 57% of his wins by KO or TKO and then 25% of his wins by submission. Mm. So I'm going to pick Joaquin Silva by finish. It'll, it might be the first time I've ever picked against Clay Guida, but mostly out of solidarity. Cause I love Clay Guida uh, on actual picks. I think I, I would have a pretty good ratio. Yeah, also Clay Guida just hasn't been fighting that many like offensive dynamos as of late. And getting the the Rafa Garcias and the Scott Holtzmans, you know, and Joaquin Silva as a fundamentally flawed but uh explosive and opportunistic. Yeah, I I don't think that uh I I actually don't think Clay's going to get finished. I think if he does lose it'll be a decision. I think if the fight, I, I think if the fight goes to decision, then Clay Guida wins. I think Joaquin just is going to be. I think he's going to hit hard enough to to make Clay just forced to slow his pace. Not intentionally. Just, he's can he do get that hit, for three so, rounds though? I don't think so, but I think uh, it's it's a fight where Clay is is likely to have a a lower volume than normal. But I mean, also, you know, I could be wrong. Clay could just go up and wrestle bully the shit out of him because Joaquin Silva is not a particularly good fighter in any regard. And you normally got to be a bit of a specialist to, or just a really reliable, like, all-terrain fighter to, to beat Clay comfortably. Yeah, this is the thing about Joaquin Silva. Is he did get knocked out by Ricky Glenn and Nasrat Hatprast. But he, like, almost knocked out Armin Sarukian, so... <laughs> Yeah, it's also, it's not a, it's not a fight that Clay tends to have particular trouble with. Like someone that's just athletic and, and built isn't the type of fighter that normally gives him a bunch of paws. It's people that are lanky and can fuck him up with, with like strikes or people that can just sub him real quick. Which, worth noting, Joaquin Silva, his, his fucking nickname is Neto BJJ. You know, he's got, he, he's supposed to be a BJJ guy. He should win by submission. 
And he won against Neil Magny in a, a grappling competition by guillotine choke. So well, we know he's got an all right gilly then. Yeah. So I, yeah, I, I'm going to pick I, that. I'm going to yeah, pick, him gonna to pick be the, Silva the, by the submission. Twelfth person to submit Clay Guido. <laughs> Is it only twelve? Uh, I think it will be. Okay, so uh, that's depressing. I'm picking uh, Joaquin Silva, uh, and I'm just, I'm just going to stick to picking people with over like a 50% finish rate to beat Clay Guida. Now, especially now that he's old. What do you mean now that he's been old? Nah, he was in his prime up until like last month. But now he's 41, you know. Still training with Greg Jackson. Uh, we got Punahele Soriano fighting Dustin Stoltzfus. Very little actual analysis is doing this fight other than it should be fun. Punahele is going to win by knockout, presumably. A fight that I do think is actually pretty tight, though, is Misha Tate versus Julia Avila. I love Julia Avila. She's very fun. Uh, she fights at a like a surprisingly crazy pace. She She's really earned the nickname Raging Panda. And uh, you know who does not like fighting at a high pace in the slightest, especially early? Misha Tate. So I'm going to pick Julie Avila by first round finish. Yeah, I mean, I'm kind of done with this card. We got Steve Garcia. Yeah, you always got to mention Steve Garcia. Yeah, it's your boy Steve Garcia. He's fighting Milka Zyle Costa, who is he? One of the Charles Oliveira dudes? Um, I think so. Uh, what gym is he at? Yeah, he's at Shooter Box, but it could be a different Shooter Box. I'm not sure. I gotta be honest. I just d- didn't prepare for the the prelims for this card too much because it, it's there's not much to analyze. Oh, you think I'm gonna spend my time watching Milka's Isle caster fights? And just be like, well, he's a Brazilian guy who fights at lightweight or below. I'm just gonna assume he's one of the Charles Oliveira guys. Yeah, I'm going to pick um, Ihor Potiera by, like, blindingly fast knockout. He's going to duel the shit out of this guy. I just got to lean into the bit for that one. Mm-hmm. You want to mention a little bit about uh, last week, or I guess the week before's events at uh, this point? Yes. Uh, Paul Craig looked literally the worst I've ever seen him look. Um, but what did, you, what did you think he was going to do? I wasn't... I was expecting him to like land a punch and like yeah he kind of hurt like right now. I was expecting him to just throw more you know like what, at all. What, what, what has Paul Craig ever ever done that led you to expect that? He throws. He's never been like an inactive striker. He's just bad there and then normally stops doing it when he gets his ass beat. But this one he like he normally stops like striking just tries to grapple. But he, he's trying to be good now and it's it's bad for him. Definitely to his detriment, because I, I still think he had like some possibility to big Brennan Allen if he just didn't fight so bad. But he let uh, Brennan Allen have the front foot as much as he wanted. He relied on his skill in the grappling instead of relying on, a, I, I thought, a somewhat noticeable stru- like strength advantage. I thought maybe like 15% stronger or something, you know, enough to work with if you try to impose that. But he was willing to just, oh, let me try and do a skill sweep. Oh, let me try and do some shit that I'm just going to get outspeeded. Christian, like, it's okay. his entire... I, 
I know you didn't really think Paul Craig was going to win, and you were just refusing to pick Brandon Allen. It's fine. I'll, I'm, I'm not going to roast you Paul too Craig hard for this. I thought Paul Craig would try harder, at least. Even though I was picking against him, I thought it was going to be valiant, but it was like an embarrassing loss, and he should leave 185 immediately because that is a bad look. To have one of his kind of only okay matchups in the top 15 at 185, like it's not a good matchup, but it's a better matchup than if you give him fucking Jared Cannonier. Uh, yeah, it certainly is, but it was also just like, yeah, he got, he just got torched by someone who's six times faster than him and better in every regard. More functional and consistent in every phase of MMA. There's just, Literally there's just it. outmatches him athletically in every single regard, except for maybe like a 5% or 15% strength advantage coming from Craig being larger. Which also doesn't really matter when Brendan Allen is also just better than Paul Craig at jiu-jitsu. Yeah. And, and much faster. The, 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 what positions was Paul Craig even... Like, how was he even going to get to a good position? And even if he got to one, he was probably still just going to end up getting rear naked choked. Both are a mess defensively, but Allen is just more dangerous on the feet. Um, yeah, Brendan Allen's calling for like Jared Jared Cannonier and Rob Whitaker. I say give him those fights. I think Rob Whitaker fights like a fair enough call out, but you he wants to stay the fuck away from Jared Cannonier. No, I think give him that fight. Well, yeah, I want to see it, but like for his own safety, he should avoid Jared Cannonier at all costs. Uh, Michael well, he might he might just get popped okay. a little bit, you know. Yeah, just a little pop, you know. Uh, Michael Morales is, is uh, he's getting more mid, or, or which is good because before I thought he just wasn't very good. He's he's evolved into being mid. Maybe he'll become good soon. I at least thought he was uh, fun and violent, but he's you know he's trying to just be actually good, but it doesn't seem like he has any real idea how. He's just kind of vibing and being a crazy athlete and. You know, like, for someone at this point in his career, wins over, like, established veterans like Jake Matthews and Max Griffin, I'm like, well, yeah, that's, like, just, like, pretty impressive for a guy who only came into the UFC last year and only had a few fights. But I'm just, like, looking at him, I'm like, what? What What are you trying to do out there? Yeah, and I saw someone say Jake Matthews looked bad. Which my response is he looked like Jake Matthews. I do think Jake Matthews has gotten worse. I can't imagine watching Jake Matthews from these last couple of fights, and then if he were to get matched up with like Li Jing Liang, being like, "Oh yeah, he's gonna win this fight dominantly." He is looking aimless and uh, like he thinks he's a striker now. And- I never saw Jake Matthews really try to do any do anything to really try to take a fight back that he was kind of just calmly losing. Uh, but yeah, Michael Morales, he's, he's kind of just Chaos Williams. But with more technique and, and less power. Both got a crazy chin, though. Yeah, I mean, he still clearly hits hard. Um that's something that's really carrying out, carrying him out there is he's just fucking... I think he's a clubbing hitter. I don't think he's the type of person that can really, like, flash start someone. Just because he's not subtle at all. 
is Chaos Williams. Yeah, because he's so bad, he'll do things you didn't know he, that people could do. Like punch you with his one of his hands on his balls. Or, or like, punch you from behind his ass, where the, the punch starts. I am optimistic for the future of Michael Morales, just for a guy who's going to hang around and rack up experience, and he's a crazy physical specimen, and, you know, these guys just kind of, they just kind of figure it out. And quite often they just kind of keep winning, even though you're looking at them going, is this guy actually good at anything? Yeah, it it may have sounded overly pessimistic, me saying he has evolved to mid, but I don't mean that he's stopping there. You know, he's only twenty five, like or twenty four, so he's liable to get better than mid. I just didn't think he was very good before, and he looked the best that he's looked, which is a good sign. Oh, and the, your favorite fight of every card, any card ever, happened before this, and it was fucking sick as hell. Like, Chase Hooper and Jordan Levitt just got into a crazy fucking leg entanglement, and then Chase Hooper took the dude's back and choked him out. It was badass. And it was a really nice way that he got the, the choke, too. He grabbed the chin well. Um, I expected any amount of striking more to happen in this fight, but I guess if you kind of match both these fighters' temperaments against each other, one of them's going to be like, I'm just going to do a, a grapple. And I fucking respect it. I'm not, I'm not having any of this fucking... I want to see... Brendan Allen and Paul Craig go out and have a kickboxing match for literally any amount of time. Like this is this is, this is mixed martial arts and, and go watch kickboxing. <laughs> yeah. Um, Peyton Talbot, he's a pretty cool prospect. Nothing crazy yet, but he he seems good. He, he's a very weird scrambler. He'll just do a backflip sometimes, or or like do a cartwheel to get out of someone uh, sprawling on him. Yeah, he's just a fucking... He's just a wacky action fighter. He kind of reminds me of, Crazy like, proprioception. It kind of reminds me of, like... Even though he's, like, way more athletic and probably has a way higher ceiling, kind of reminds me of Brian Battle. The guy who's I just, like... That. I just, like... I just turn up and fucking get into a scrap, dude. <laughs> I just go to war with people and get wrestle-fucked and then stand up and then do a big old kick... Uh, I, just, I just want to break the guy and just do all of MMA. He's a lot of fun. Yeah, you can tell Peyton Talbot also really likes um, like Prime Connor, and not the Prime Connor people think of where they think of the Eddie fight, but no, like like Dennis Seaver fight Connor. Yeah, top knot Connor. Where where you're you're yeah, like you're pressuring people to the cage, kicking them real hard in the body, but keeping your like your hips away so they can't take you down putting good single shots on, then starting to rip combinations. If the guy is really worried about the first shot, he, he's, he seems like a, a certainly functional grappler. He's got real slick. It, like the RNC he got was real fucking gorgeous. Like it, it came on so quickly. And the second his opponent started breaking, he, he identified it well, which is something that most young fighters are not known for. Yeah, really nice the way in the in the finishing sequence. He just he he just sensed that his opponent was on the brink. Comes out, wang the big old body kick is a like ready to stuff the shot immediately. Uh, um, when uh, Aguirre gra- grabs the leg off of the kick, like I yeah, think used, between used rounds, it to like used it to like grab a front choke to roll him over to get on top or something like that. It was it was badass. 
Yeah, and he started uh, be- between rounds two and three. He did a little break motion with his hands to be like, yeah, you're broken, bitch. And then he went up and finished him. So that is impressive uh, awareness um, and killer instinct for a young fighter. Also, he has maybe the most Can't nuts. Uh, he has the, some of the most nuts body awareness and agility that I've seen of a fighter of that level. It doesn't necessarily mean anything because those are skills that can kind of mean nothing if you don't end up having the mind for it. But he's a good prospect. He he should uh, turn out at least pretty fun. Oh, he's at least going to be in some crazy fights, you know. Um, and he lost one by wheel kick, basically. That was badass. Uh, yeah. Luana Pinero, she just, I mean, she just throws big old fucking bungalows. She's like one of the classic examples of someone who like never hurts anyone because she's just trying to hit so hard. Yeah, so tired. Not yeah, she just gets tired, and it's not really the play against Amanda Hebus if you can't actually land clean shots and just fucking chin her. Um, so she just kind of got gassed, and Amanda Hebus, as janky as it was, just really kept the pressure on and just uh, put up put up a really high pace of uh, really varied shot selection, and yeah, blasted Luana with a wheel kick in the third round, and dinged her with a right hand, finished her. Uh, I think I think going back down to one fifteen is probably the move for Amanda Hebush. Um, she probably has a relatively similar ceiling when you get towards the top end. You know, there are fights towards the top five that are basically unwinnable for her. She's just a lot less liable to get chin checked in this division. Yeah, I don't think her chin suffers from a weight cut. I think it suffers from getting hit hard. Yeah. And, uh, um, Yeruz Medic for uh, Mektebek Oroibel on super short notice and um, got absolutely smushed and destroyed. Yeah, Orobai is good as hell. He he got his ass whooped in the first round a little bit, but Medic couldn't get the finish uh, because it seems like Orbai was already in good shape. He, he came in unprepared for his specific opponent, but he seemed like sh- in shape wise, he was, he was ready, you know, like he looked lean. He didn't look like he had too much troubles making weight or anything. So it was, a, uh, I mean, these make uh, pretty good. It, it's a weird one. Cause it's short notice and his opponent was very clearly not prepared to fight a grappler. So you got to take it with a bit of a grain of salt, but in the rest of his career, he has a good, um, a good history of grapple fucking the shit out of people. Yeah, wasn't a great look for Oros, uh, particularly just once any re- wrestling threat was established, he was just so reactive and unwilling to commit to his own offense, and just easily backed up to the cage and taken down at the beginning of the second round. Yeah, Orobo clearly, yeah. Uh, Legit prospect, and I'm sure Oros is still going to get to be in some crazy striking action fights and win by some cool knockouts. Just maybe shows that maybe his ceiling is not quite where we thought it was, uh, particularly having to move up to 170 because he got absolutely pasted. And Johansson uh, Brito ninja choked Jonathan Pierce. And Jonathan Pierce was talking shit, saying, get up and do something. And then he got choked immediately. And it was really funny. So that's MMA for you. 
Mm-hmm. Um, well, fuck, this podcast is pretty fucking long, I guess. I was going to maybe mention uh, Sergio Pettis getting cho- choked out by Patchy Mix, but, um, you know, I assume that nobody's actually seen that because how are you supposed to watch Bellator? It's literally impossible. Yeah, just finding it. Uh, after the fact is, is annoying as shit. We still never actually like talked about Sergio Pettis, even though he's like your favorite fighter ever. Mm-hmm. We just haven't had a great opportunity for it. And also he's in Bellator, which now is PFL. So uh, maybe we'll talk about a PFL tournament coming up or something. Well, that'll do then. We'll catch you guys later. Peace. Yep. Later. Later.